The following sermon was delivered on Sunday morning, November 13, 2005, at Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. Many years ago, more years than I'd like to count, I was seeking to witness to a total stranger. We came to a point in our conversation when I asked the man, Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And he said, Yes, sir, I believe in Jesus. I said, Well, sir, tell me, what do you believe about Jesus? And he answered without any blush. And this is not a parody on folk from the South, but it was down in the South and he had a Southern accent. He says, sir, I believe he's for good. I believe he's for good. That was the content of his faith in Jesus. And obviously, if that was the full content of his faith in Jesus, that faith was something less than what he thought it was. He thought it put him in a safe position. That believing that Jesus was somehow or other for good was all the Bible meant when it said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if the confusion were limited to that one isolated man there in the South many years ago, one might not be too concerned. But as I said last Lord's Day, if you were the devil and wanted to damn the souls of men and women and boys and girls, and you knew, as the devil does know, that the only bond by which a sinner in the nakedness of his need can be joined to Christ in all the fullness of his saving power is the bond of faith, you would do your best to confuse people, to distort their understanding of what it is the Bible means when it says faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for some weeks we have been studying together the teaching of the Word of God concerning these two things that Paul highlights from his ministry at Ephesus, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And I have identified them as the hinge on which the door of salvation turns. Last Lord's Day, having spent eight studies on the necessity, the nature and fruit of repentance unto life, we began to consider the necessity, the nature, and the fruits of saving faith. And last Lord's Day, I sought to accomplish only two things. I sought, first of all, to explain why we have to use the non-biblical term saving faith rather than just faith in the Lord Jesus. And basically, it's because the same verb to believe and the same noun, faith, is used, both are used in such a way that they refer to actings of the mind and the soul that fall short of saving faith, that is, the faith that unites us to Christ. James says the demons also believe, same verb, but certainly the demons are not saved. So we have to use a term, non-biblical term, in order to be precise and to have a clear understanding of what the Bible means when it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you shall be saved, or by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. What is that belief and faith? It is saving belief. It is saving faith. And then secondly, I attempted to demonstrate the urgent necessity for you to exercise saving faith. And I gave you three reasons. Because you are presently and desperately in need of what, can only, what you can only come to possess by faith in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, because God graciously commands you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, because without saving faith, you are right now and will continue under a heightened measure of divine condemnation reserved for those who hear about Christ but will not believe upon Christ. Now in our study of the Word of God this morning, we shall begin to examine together the crucial matter of the nature of saving faith. Having established the necessity for saving faith, we now move in the second place to begin to consider the nature of saving faith. And so this morning, God helping us, we're going to focus all of our attention upon this issue of the nature of saving faith and the first and most foundational aspect of its nature, namely, what is the object or who is the object of saving faith? Now that's the one thing I want to accomplish in opening up the scriptures this morning, that if a stranger would meet you in the parking lot who doesn't know Adam from Eve, totally ignorant, should ask you, hey, what were you doing in that building? Oh, well, we, we sang hymns and psalms and praised God. We prayed. We gave something to the work of God. And we listened to preaching. Preaching? Yeah. Well, what was the preaching about? I hope you'd be able to say, the preacher tried to teach us from the Bible who is the object of saving faith. I hope every one of you could go out in the parking lot and meet the pagan. And if I could, I'd be a quick change artist and, and put on a disguise and be that stranger and walk up randomly to someone. you say, hey, what happened in that building? And see if you really listened. All right? That's the one thing I want to accomplish, that every one of you will go out of here persuaded from the Bible that you know the answer to this question, who or what is the object of saving faith? And as I seek to instruct you and persuade you, I have two major headings. Number one, the object of saving faith identified in two helpful definitions of faith. And then secondly, the object of saving faith identified in the witness of some selective portions of the Word of God. So I'm going to set before you, very briefly, two helpful definitions of saving faith, and you're going to see that in those definitions, one of them hammered out by dozens of very astute, careful students of the Word of God over a period of many years, and the other hammered out by one man who himself was very much influenced by that great body of theologians and pastors who hammered out the first definition. In other words, these are things not just spun out of the stuff of Pastor Martin's head when he was preparing on Saturday. 
So then, we're going to look at these two definitions and see as they describe the nature of saving faith, what is the emphasis with regard to the objects or object of saving faith? Question number 86 in the shorter catechism is, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And here's the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Now you see where the emphasis lies with regard to the object of saving faith? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith terminates upon a person, not a proposition. There are oodles of little manuals on personal work in gospel tracts that say, if you will admit you are a sinner and believe that Jesus Christ died in your place upon the cross, you will be saved. And they make the object of saving faith a proposition about one aspect of the work of Christ. You see the difference? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him. Not His finished work, not His atonement, but the one who accomplished the finished work and effected the atonement. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Not His salvation detached from His person, but His person with His salvation enfolded in Him. You see the emphasis? The object of saving faith is a person, not a proposition. Not an aspect of his work. It is the person himself who is offered to us. And faith engages, receives, and rests upon this person. The second definition is from Professor John Murray. And he writes, The essence of saving faith is nothing less than self-commitment to Jesus Christ in all the glory of his person and perfection of his work, as he is freely and fully offered in the gospel. Now you see the similar emphasis? Because Professor Murray was steeped in the theology of the old Scottish Presbyterians who had with their mother's milk the shorter catechism. And he wrote... After years of reflection and teaching on this subject, the essence of saving faith is nothing less than self-commitment to Jesus Christ. The object is a person in all the glory of his person and the perfection of his work as he is freely offered in the gospel. In both of those definitions, Christ himself in his person is the object of saving faith. 
In both definitions, it is the sinner in all the nakedness of his need who goes out of himself to embrace the Savior in all the fullness of his saving power and grace. Well, so much for those two man-made definitions. Now we come more importantly. The object of saving faith identified in some selective witness from the word of God. And these are just specimen texts. And what I want you to see is two subheadings under this second major heading. The object of saving faith identified in the witness of the word of God. Here are the two heads. According to the scriptures, it is Christ himself and Christ alone who is the object of saving faith. And secondly, it is Christ himself as he is offered to us in the gospel. And I just want to set forth text which prove those statements. Number one, according to the scriptures, it is the person of Christ who is the object of saving faith. Now listen carefully. Some of you know your Bibles well enough that you can already think of some texts which set forth God the Father as the primary object of saving faith. John 5:24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hears my word, Jesus is speaking, and believes on him that sent me, is passed from death unto life, and shall not, come into shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Yes, there are some texts which set forth God the Father as the object of saving faith, there are several texts which set forth some aspect of the work of Christ as the object of saving faith. For example, in Romans 3, you have the phrase, through faith in his blood. And I'm not ignorant of those texts, but I'm prepared to affirm and to challenge you with the Berean spirit to go to your own Bible with your own concordance. The preponderant emphasis of the New Testament is... That the object of saving faith is the person of Jesus Christ himself. And I want us to look now at some texts. Two of them in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. We looked at this in conjunction with one aspect last Lord's Day. When that trembling jailer who had seen the moral power of God in the lives of two innocent men beaten, unjustly thrown into prison, and yet they're blessing God and have a glory fit at midnight. And then they see the physical power of God who shakes that jail. And then they see the moral power of God restraining prisoners whose shackles fell off, but they didn't split and run off. They remained in the prison. This was too much for him. And all this power and this God who could crush him and he's ready to kill himself because he knows that if the prisoners have split, the Roman authorities will kill him. And when he sees all of this and Paul and Silas say, Sir, do yourself no harm. He's brought to the end of himself and says, I've got to know this God. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what is the answer of Paul and Silas? Acts 16 and verse 31, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. They didn't say except the fact of the atonement. They didn't say except the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. They said the object of your faith is a person. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now granted, 
Shortly after they take the man, or the man takes Paul and Silas into his home and gathers his whole household together in the wee hours of the morning, and they tell him who this Jesus is, and they tell him about his birth, and about his life, and about his death, and about his resurrection, but they let him know at the outset, Mr. Jailer man, if you're ever going to get saved, you in your person are to engage the Son of God, the only Savior of sinners, in His person. The person of the sinner engages the person of the Savior. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of these texts, you have three different Greek prepositions. En, which means in, ice, into, epi, upon. And you have believe in, Believe into, believe upon. In all of them, the sinner so engages the Savior that he can be said to be in the Savior by faith, into the Savior by faith, and upon the Savior by faith. But the Savior and the sinner get together when there is real faith. That's the bottom line. They get together. Not some propositions. Yeah, back in the cross, 2,000 years ago he died. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, good, good. Now I'm all fixed up for heaven. Where are you in Jesus? Oh, well, I trusted him. He's back there. I'm here. No, no, my friend. You come to real saving faith and you and Jesus are one. And you're attached to him. And you're attached to him in a faith that is no sooner born in your heart by the Holy Spirit than it has a baby called love. And that love has many babies called obedience to his commands, care for his honor, love for his people, person to person. That's what they told the jailer man. That's what Paul told the Ephesians, the passage we read. Acts 20 and verse 21. Paul said he solemnly testified two things. Repentance that had peculiar reference to God, God the Father, in his dignity as creator and lawgiver and ultimate judge of the world, and faith that had at his peculiar object our Lord Jesus Christ. His full names and titles, which gather within their skirts all that he is and all that he has done. And faith is directed toward that person. And then the familiar words of John, John 3, 16 to 18. All I'm trying to do is give you selected texts that prove without question that the preponderant emphasis of the New Testament with regard to the question, what's the object of saving faith? It is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 and verses 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent not the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He that believeth on him is not judged. But he that believeth not hath been judged already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Three times in those verses, 
believeth on him, on him, believing on the name that is that person as he is revealed in the scriptures. John 6 and verse 40, the same emphasis. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone that beholds the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 11 and verse 25, Jesus speaking to those ladies in that household that had just felt the sting of death, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes on me shall never die. And then the well-known words of John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, by me, my person. My person, in all that I am, in the glory of my person, in the sufficiency of my work, but it is by me. And you find the same thing in the epistles. A couple of specimen texts, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul is breaking out into this eulogy, this, this marvelous hymn of praise to the triune God for salvation. And when he comes to the work of the Spirit, he says in verse 13, In whom you also... Having heard, Ephesians 1.13, having heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, that is in Christ, having also believed. Having believed in or into Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 15, for this cause I also, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which is among you. Didn't say the faith in the finished work of the cross, but faith in the one who died upon the cross and finished the work. And then that lovely text in 1 Peter 1, bringing a witness from the three major writers of the New Testament letters, Paul, Peter, and then John. 1 Peter 1 and verse 8. 1 Peter 1 and verse 8. Whom Jesus Christ is the immediate antecedent, Notice the end of verse 7, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen you love, on whom, though you see him not yet believing, on whom do they believe? On Jesus Christ. His person is the object of their saving faith. And then the text we looked at last week, 1 John 3 and verse 23. God's command to faith What's the object of the faith? 1 John 3.23 This is His commandment that we should believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ. That is, believe upon Him who is revealed in His name. His name is the revelation of His person. And His person is the object of faith. And then the capstone text, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. And notice three times that emphasis comes through with unmistakable clarity. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Yet knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we believed on Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Three times in one verse. 
Faith that is saving faith terminates upon a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus. I trust you're persuaded from your Bibles. I hope you've had your Bibles open on your lap and seen the truth with your eyes as well as heard it with your ears. However, with equal clarity, the Scriptures teach us that the object of saving faith is not only Christ Himself and Christ alone, but secondly, the object of saving faith is Christ as He is actually offered to us in the Gospel. Not any Christ, the Christ of your own stuff of your brain, the Christ of current theological consensus in the liberal seminaries, the Christ of popular opinion. No, no, it is the Christ who is offered to us in the gospel, that gospel that is defined for us in the Holy Scriptures. And so much is this so that the Apostle Paul, I love this phrase, we read it last Lord's Day in 2 Corinthians 4. He describes the gospel as being distinctively a gospel that unfolds before our eyes the outshining of the perfections of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he's saying that his gospel is not veiled. The Jews yet have a veil upon their minds, and the God of this world blinds the minds of both Jew and Gentile. And it's in that context, notice what he says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled in them that perish, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. He says, this gospel I preach can be summarized in this way. It's a gospel through which the glory, the perfections of Jesus Christ break out in all of their splendor. It is a gospel of the glory of Christ. Saving faith is faith in the person of Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel in all the glory of who he is and what he's done. Because that glory has two major strands to it. The glory of his unique person and the glory of his perfected work. And I'm going to park on those two things with you for a few minutes. The only Christ who is the object of saving faith is the Christ couched in the gospel. And that gospel, Paul calls the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in what does that glory consist? The glory of of his unique person, and the glory of his perfected work. The glory of his unique person. The glory of Christ is that in this person and in this perfect person alone is one perfectly suited to be the Savior of hell-deserving, needy, guilty, sin-bound, devil-enslaved sinners. And that's what we all are by nature. And the glory of His person consists in the fact that He is so beautifully constituted that He perfectly suits 
our need as sinners. I remember an acrostic. I'm not enamored with little acrostics, but this one is stuck with my old brain. Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, just exactly suits us sinners. There's a lot of good theology in that little acrostic. Jesus just exactly suits us sinners. And how does he just exactly suit us sinners? Listen to the definition again of the old shorter catechism. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is this. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures, in one person, forever. That's the glory of his unique person by which he is exactly suited to us sinners. For if he's to be suited to save us, we who deserve the wrath of God, for the wages of sin is death, and God is a purer eyes than to look upon iniquity. And he does not have the kind of character in which one of his attributes can swallow up another. His love cannot swallow up his justice any more than his justice can swallow up his love. Well, how does a God who sets his heart upon saving sinners, and yet who is so just and righteous that he must punish sin, how in the world is he going to accomplish the impulses and the passion of his love when his justice stands as a barrier and says, you can't just wrap your arms around them in love. They've broken your law. Angels would have risen up and pointed to God upon the throne and said, Oh God, what have you done with your justice? You're wrapping your arm around guilty, vile, hell-deserving sinners. Their sins have not been atoned for. Their sins have not been punished. And if human sin demands death, then there must be one who's truly human, who can die, who can shed his blood, but untainted human blood. He must be sinless. He must be perfect. So he has no sin of his own for which to atone. And that's the glory of the person of Christ. That in Christ there is real, perfect, sinless humanity. When John wrote John 1.14, the Word became flesh. Everything that it means for you and me to be flesh, he was and he is. Sin is not essential to our humanity. Adam and Eve were created sinless. Everything it means to be flesh, he was and is. The angel said, you will conceive in your womb. And in a way that we cannot begin to fathom. God implants by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb that little microscopic speck that divides and divides and divides. And he went through every single stage of prenatal development. He was that little speck. And then the little flippers began to appear. And all that you see in those marvelous pictures that they're now able to take of interunerine development, he went through every single stage of it. And the scripture says, 
that when it was time for her to bring forth, she brought forth her firstborn. God didn't lift him out of the womb without Mary's groans and pains and birth blood and mucus. The word became flesh and his umbilical cord was cut. The word became flesh, true humanity. And the scripture says the child grew. Mary and Joseph rejoiced. Boy, it looks like Jesus having a growth spurt. <laughs> Can't keep the guy in food. Can't keep him in shoes. Can't keep him in trousers. The word became flesh. And the child grew. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Jesus can say his whole evil alphabet. Isn't that wonderful? He can say whole sentences. He can do something more than mumble mama and dada. The word became flesh. When he skinned his knee in the backyard, he came in crying and asked for mama to kiss it and fix his boo-boo. The word became flesh. Did he have pimples when he came to puberty? I don't know. But the word became flesh. Became conscious of moving from boyhood to manhood and all that's involved in that. There was a first time. All the pictures show him bearded all the time. How do you know he had a beard? I don't know. Neither do you. He may have gone through what most of you guys went. Remember the first time you, you found something enough to shave? Oh man, that was coming of age. That was it. Yeah, that was the rite of passage. That was the rite of passage. And then the rest of you try to prove the rest of you got there. And when you can grow a little stubble, you do it. Yeah, I know. Been there, done that. The word became flesh, folks. Word became flesh. Grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. He learned social graces. They weren't dumped upon him from heaven. The word became flesh. Real humanity. That knew disappointment and sorrow. And all that is peculiar to human experience in this fallen world. Yet through all of it, never sinned. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But he was true flesh. Why? That in that humanity, as we shall see, he might not only live out a life of perfect obedience, but that he might die a real death with real blood spilling out of the many wounds from the top of his head to his feet. Without such a one who was true man, who could take our place in our humanity and yet sinless that he might not have to die for his own sin. We could not have a Savior. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who became man. Became man. Ah, but wait a minute. Laid upon him is the task of rescuing a multitude of sinners out of every kindred, tribe, and nation whom no man can number. And how does one have enough worth so that his life and his death can count for untold millions? Because he brings to it the worth of deity. The worth of deity. All the worth of his Godhead is poured into his work in conjunction with his manhood. And so the scripture that teaches us he was as much man as though he were never God teaches us he was as much God as though he were never man. 
For John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Undiluted Godhead. Colossians 2 and verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I say it reverently, there's not one ten thousandth of a drop of what constitutes God, God that was not in Jesus You got it? Essential, undiluted deity joined to real, true, sinless humanity. Why? Because only such a Savior would suit us sinners. And Jesus is set before us in the gospel in that way. Not the Jesus of your notions. That you can cuddle up to and occasionally look to him in some icon on the wall in your bedroom. This Jesus. Who before his incarnation knew what it was for cherubim and seraphim to veil face and feet in his presence. And be intimidated by his holiness. Through whom God spoke worlds into being. The next time you see a picture of some new galaxy they've discovered, say Jesus made it. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that hath been made. John 1, 3. Think of it. That's the Savior set before us in the gospel. Truly God, bringing to his saving work all the worth of deity, but all the power of deity. Think of it. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. He can break the chains. Of demonic power. He can open blind eyes. And raise the spiritually dead. Why? Because he brings to his work. As declared in the gospel. The uniqueness of his person. Now that's the Christ offered in the gospel. And my friend listen to me. That's why all this talk about. Can you accept Christ as Savior. Not as Lord. Can you be a Christian. And not? It's a bunch of nonsense. If faith in Jesus Christ is engagement of your person with that person. You don't monkey with God while you're still strutting around doing your own thing. It's absolutely ridiculous. You get in the presence of God and you're on your face saying with Saul of Tarsus, Lord, what would you have me to do? End of discussion. And if that's not where you're at, you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as he's presented in the gospel. You've got a little Jesus of your own making that you can dicker with. And you can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other and go out and feel you're all right. My friend, you have dealings with the Jesus presented in the gospel and it's all over as far as who's going to run your life. It's all over. We read it this morning. He died for all. Why? All died. To what end? That they who live by his death should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him who for their sake died and rose again. That's why he died, and that's what he gets every time he gets one of those for whom he died. And if that's not you, you've got no reason to believe he died for you, and that you're under the canopy of his saving work. You don't need to write books on it. It's absolute stupidity, moral insanity. The Christ presented in the gospel. You meet him by faith. And it's all over the question who's going to run your life. It's all over. It's done. It's settled. 
I'm off the throne, he's on the throne. And if that hadn't been settled, you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not only the Christ presented in the gospel in the glory of his person, but in the perfection of his work. In the perfection of his work. His work in three dimensions. It was so hard to try to reduce it to three things, and I know there are things I've left, will have left unsaid, but I hope this is helpful. His work that validated his identity, his work of representative obedience that secured the salvation of his people, and his work of substitutionary atonement that turned away the wrath of God. The glory and perfection. When someone's preaching the biblical gospel, what's he telling you about the work of Jesus? Well, he's telling you that his work here on earth validated his identity. You'll notice how the apostles emphasize this. Acts 2, verse 22. Let's look at it. I think we've got time. Yes, we do. Acts 2 and verse 22. Peter stands in the Bay of Pentecost and says, Hey, you guys saying that we're drunk, you missed it. We don't get drunk around here at 9 o'clock in the morning. We get drunk, it'd be later on at night. We don't bend our elbows over breakfast. We do that over supper. So, no, you missed it. We're not drunk. This is that spoken by the prophet Joel. Then he begins to preach Christ to them. And notice what he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, even as you yourselves know. When Peter began to preach the gospel, he says, salvation's in a person. And this person has validated his identity by his works of mighty power. And he does the same thing in the household of Cornelius in Acts 10, 36 to 39. And when John comes to the end of his gospel, what does he say in John chapter 20? He says, look, many things Jesus did. Look at the verse, Acts, uh, John chapter 20. Skip over the Acts 10 passage. Verse 30. Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He said these signs validate who he is. The Christ of the gospel is not some unhistorical religious notion or concoction of the ideas of musty theologians or overly enthusiastic religious followers. No! There were hundreds who could come forward and say, these eyes were blind as stones and he opened them and I see. His limbs were crooked and he straightened them. My buddy was dead, and we were out playing football yesterday. My mama couldn't have babies. Now she's got six of them. Jesus laid his hands upon her, opened her womb. Approved of God by mighty signs and wonders. That's the Christ of the gospel. He is not a bunch of religious notions. He's the Christ who validated his identity by his mighty works. Secondly, his work is one of representative obedience that secured the salvation of his people. That's the gospel. Look at Romans 5.19. Romans 5 and verse 19, Paul has demonstrated that through the one man, Adam, sin entered the human race. And all men are condemned in Adam. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, 
the many were constituted sinners, you and me, all of us. Even so, through the obedience of the one, shall the many be made righteous. Listen carefully. It's hard to even say these words, but I, I don't know how else to say them. If the righteousness that God holds forth in the gospel was comprised only of what Jesus did in his death, by his death, turning away the wrath of God, so that we would no longer be credited with sins that deserve wrath, we'd just be put back to square one where Adam and Eve were before they sinned. But we would have no positive righteousness to commend us to God. But because Jesus lived in our condition, Galatians 4, made of a woman, made under the law, and rendered absolute perfect obedience to every requirement of God in thought, in word, in motive, in look, in disposition, in gesture. Think of it. All the breadth of God's law that touches every atom of our humanity from the deepest springs of motive, why we do what we do, to all the outer expressions of those streams in every word and deed and look, not once was there a hair's breadth deviation from perfect love to God and perfect love to man. And he rendered that obedience as our representative so that if somehow we can get into Christ and under Christ's skirt, then all that obedience that he rendered, God can justly credit to me. And now I've got more than just forgiveness. I've got a positive credit of perfect righteousness that demands the reward of heaven. And if you believe that, there ought to be someone who at least peeped. You see that? By the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. His righteousness. The righteousness of his life of perfect obedience. And then, in the third place, his work of substitutionary atonement. We read about it this morning in 2 Corinthians 5. The sinless one became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. We heard about the other last Lord's Day or two Lord's Days ago. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. All that cursedness meant to every lawbreaker, He endured. He became a curse for us. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who carries away the sin of the world. What's the Christ of the biblical gospel? He is not the muscular Christ of the half-converted weightlifter. He's not the athletic Christ of the half-converted fullback. And he's not the sentimental Christ of the half-converted female poet. He's this Christ. God and man Two distinct natures in one person bringing to his work the reality of true humanity, sinless, but true humanity. Bringing to it all the virtue and all the power of deity. And in that person there was rendered by his mighty works every validation of his identity as God's Messiah. 
In that person there was rendered an obedience to the law of God that was representative. It was obedience rendered on behalf of all whom God chose in him before the foundation of the world. And who were as it were hung upon his belt in every act of his obedience. His work of going to the cursedness of the cross and bearing all that damnation would mean for us. He bore it in himself. Now that's the Christ offered in the gospel. It's not the guitar twanging Jesus who's hip and cool and he's with it. You want to get with Jesus? He's cool. I get sick of these unprincipled, unconverted people who appeal to the addiction that some of you young people have to contemporary music and justify their rotten, commercial, self-serving interest by putting a smattering of Jesus in there. It sickens me. It's making merchandise of the Word of God. That's not the Christ of the Bible. He's not hip, and he's not cool. He's the Christ whose glory is so ineffable and so grand that when a holy man like John the Apostle sees the risen, exalted Christ, he falls on his face like a dead man. And he only rises when Jesus comes and puts his hand upon him and says, Don't be afraid. Not that Jesus... It gets a bunch of half-converted young people all swaying like they're in a rock concert, whooping it up for Jesus. I haven't spoken on that for a long time, dear people. I can only take it so long when I see some of you being duped by that nonsense. Don't let them cheapen your Jesus. You claim to embrace the Jesus of the gospel. Then you fall down and bid others to fall down and worship him. Fall down and say, Lord, I'm done. I'm, it's all over. I'm yours. Who's the object of saving faith? It's the person of Christ. It is the person of Christ as revealed in the gospel. Now, in closing, I want to make just a couple of simple observations. First of all, with respect to this matter, who is the object of saving faith? It's Christ alone. It is Christ in the glory of his person and the perfection of his work. It is the glory of the gospel, and this is its glory, to call sinners to engage the Savior directly. No priest, no minister, no counselor, no inquiry room worker need to get in between. Jesus says, you sinner, come to me and I'll give you rest. The sinner in all the nakedness and helplessness of his need has warrant to engage the Savior with nobody in between. And no ritual in between. No water, no wafer, no incantations. The sinner and the Savior, they come together in the embrace of faith. That's glorious. This man receives 
sinners. Yeah, that's right. That's the glory of who Jesus is. And then secondly, it's not the propositions about the person and his work that are the object of faith, but Christ himself. But now hear me carefully. This Christ whom you and I are to receive, he only rides forth in gospel grace and conquest in the chariot of the propositions about him. You want Christ? You'll find him in the chariot of the propositions about him. He's God. He's man. He lived a representative life of obedience. He died a vicarious substitutionary death. You want Christ? He comes riding in the chariot of these propositions. You can't have Christ without his chariot. But you can point to the chariot wheel of his deity and describe it well and not have Christ. You can say, I believe the left chariot wheel about his person. He's God and man in one person forever. You can believe the left chariot wheel that he died on the cross for sinners. It's not pointing to some part of the chariot and say, I believe it and I like it. It's receiving the king who comes riding in regal grace in that chariot. You can believe and point your finger to parts of the chariot and not have him. But you can't have him anywhere but in his chariot. I like that. As I was praying, Lord, how do I try to get this across? I haven't yet soaked it in yet. So if I seem like I'm fishing with it, we'll fish together. That, does that register? You see how the two are together now. Can't separate his person and his work as they are taught propositionally, theologically, intelligibly in our Bibles. But it's not grabbing this proposition or that or any combination of them that is the object of saving faith. It is embracing the Savior in the chariot of all that's true about Him. Oh, if you haven't embraced Him, embrace Him today. Embrace Him today. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is able. He is able. Come. 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 Bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry to your better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merits of his blood. Venture on him. Venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, what can we say when we try with our own feeble minds to wrap them around such mind-blowing realities, and yet you've revealed them and you've said that you even reveal them unto babes while you hide them from the wise and the prudent. We pray that you'll shine upon the face of your beloved Son in some heart this morning. Oh God, that some heart that has been utterly dead to him would come alive today as you shine in that heart and reveal Jesus. We pray for those of us who are your children. Lord, warm our hearts at the thought of all that our Savior is and all that He has and continues to do for us. 
Seal to our hearts your word and continue with us throughout this day. We ask in his worthy name. Amen.